You're listening to Money and Meaning, Unlikely Allies, Building New Markets for Impact. With your hosts, Lindsay Smalling and Alex Kravitz. Check out our website, socialcapitalmarkets.net. Let's join the conversation. Welcome back to Money and Meaning. I'm your host, Alex Kravitz. On this week's episode, I had the pleasure of sitting down with Rip Rapson, the president and CEO of the Kresge Foundation, and Aaron Seiberg, Kresge's social investment officer, to talk about the great work that the foundation is doing to try to set a precedent for impact and accountability within the newly created Opportunity Zones. I won't go into too much detail up front, since Rip does a great job framing the discussion and its importance, but Opportunity Zones were created as part of the recent Tax Cuts and Jobs Act to drive investment into low-income communities around the country. The legislation is likely to drive tens of billions of dollars, if not hundreds of billions, into these newly designated opportunity zones. But with almost no oversight, the investment seems as likely to harm these low-income communities as it does to help. So, in response to this concern, the Kresge Foundation, long a champion of inclusive community development, has agreed to a deal with two newly established opportunity funds to mitigate some of the risk of the new funds in exchange for higher levels of transparency and accountability. By working so quickly to get out to the forefront of this new space, the foundation is hoping to set a precedent for how these funds can work in such a way that benefits both communities and investors alike. With that, let's jump into the conversation. Rip, Aaron, thank you so much for for joining us on the podcast. Welcome to the show. Oh, it's our pleasure. Thanks for having us. We're going to get into the work that that the Kresge Foundation is doing around Opportunity Zones in in a minute. But before we get into that, could you give us a quick background on on the foundation and the type of work that you focus on? Sure. Kresge Foundation is one of the nation's oldest foundations. It was actually uh, created in 1924 by Sebastian Kresge, who was a early century entrepreneur who started in 1899 the nation's first five and dime stores. Those grew and grew and eventually became Kmart. And at some point, the enterprise became large enough that it stopped being a family business. And so the family uh, sold off its its ownership and created a trust. And that trust became the Kresge Foundation. And so for the last um, many decades, Kresge has operated as a private foundation. We focus um, much of our energy in Detroit. About 20% of our activity and our giving is centered in Detroit. But the other 80% is uh, scattered across the country in a variety of different programs, ranging from human services to health, to the environment, to arts and culture, to community development, um, to higher education. And it's a it's a portfolio that consists of both grant making. We give out about $150 million a year in grants and social investments, non-grant capital, um, for which we have a $350 million commitment through 2020 from our board of directors. And you recently committed $22 million to two funds that are investing in, in opportunity zones at a high level. What, what are opportunity zones and how does this tie into the larger mission of the, the foundation? Well, the Opportunity Zone incentive was created as part of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act of 2017, the Big Tax Cut Act. And it was largely intended to provide a tax incentive 
to uh, individuals and to funds who are sitting on capital gains and who might move some of those monies into some of the most distressed and disadvantaged communities in America. It, I think, was a response to the sense that capital simply wasn't flowing into some of the communities that needed it the most. And that that in turn contributed to growing economic inequality, disinvestment in some of the nation's most central places, uh, and just generally um, urban revitalization um, at large. And so the act required that the governors of each state submit census tracts, mostly income, low-income census tracts, but also others adjacent to those, to be designated as eligible opportunity zones. And they were about 40,000 eligible tracks, and of those eligible tracks, about 8,500 of them were actually designated as opportunity zone tracks. And they were both in rural communities and in urban communities. And so the, the, the machinery was put in motion to try to start moving capital into these places. Uh, the possibility of uh, orders of magnitude are just enormous. This could be billions, indeed trillions of dollars, theoretically. We don't think quite that much money will, will flow into these communities, but there's certainly the possibility. So we, we believe, um, as do the framers of the, of the act, that one of the major challenges facing uh, low-income communities in America is the absence of capital. I think it's a little bit more complicated than that. We can talk about that. I think it's not just the absence of capital, but it's actually how capital is deployed and how effectively it is targeted to meet the needs of low-income people. But I think the intent is admirable. But unlike other uh, more recent attempts to move capital into uh, urban areas and low-income areas, this is essentially one without guardrails. <laughs> the, the opportunity zone program is essentially like a home mortgage program. You claim it as, a, as part of your taxes, uh, but the government doesn't much pay attention to how that money is applied in, in specific terms. There are really very few guidelines for how this money needs to land, how it's uh, reported, uh, whether there's any accountability for its being used in one particular way or another. So the potential upside is quite high, but there are also some potential downsides. And we viewed our role, at least in part, is to try to identify ways in which we might signal to the market that they should emphasize the upside. They should take a look at the potential benefits of these funds moving into areas that need it for particular purposes that are helping low-income people get ahead in life. So how is Kresge trying to emphasize the upside to signal to the market that there is a way to invest in opportunity zones that, that both generates financial returns and helps people in these low-income communities? Well, I should, I should offer a disclaimer right out of the box that when you're talking about a potential infusion of billions and billions and billions of dollars of capital, one philanthropy in, in the heartland of America probably is not going to largely change that trajectory. But on the other hand, we believe that early movers and early entrants into this system will help set the terms of engagement and at least signal into the market what the possibilities might be. So Kresge has undertaken to provide guarantees, um, uh, instruments of uh, assurance into the private markets that certain return expectations will be met in return for an agreement on the part of funds that they will in fact channel monies into the kinds of projects that leave urban communities a better place rather than a poorer place. 
um, we've uh, uh, we went out to market with uh, an RFP asking potential fund managers whether they would be interested in this kind of guarantee vehicle as as part of their capital uh, configuration. We got back, oh gosh, 150 responses, um, many of which were well-intended, but not particularly well-targeted to, to achieve the kinds of outcomes we had hoped. But there were a number. And so we, uh, we sifted through those. We worked with the Rockefeller Foundation in doing that and ended up selecting a small number in which we felt we could sort of do a workup and a business plan that might make sense. Um, at the end of the day, uh, we landed on two or perhaps three early funds that we believe have real potential to have impact in communities in a way that will advance social mobility and social opportunity for low-income people in, in cities. And we're uh, working with them to shape up those um, investments and, and, and get them to market. The idea here is not that two funds with perhaps seven or $800 million of total potential investment will, will change the world. But again, that they may signal to the broader investment community that this kind of fund assembly is possible, that you can pull together these opportunity zone funds in a way that help people build businesses, secure homes, um, and otherwise benefit low-income communities, rather than uh, putting in a pawn shop or uh, pursuing sort of predatory lending practices or doing any number of other things that at least potentially these funds could do. It remains to be seen whether the market will take that signal, but um, our view is that we need to try, that it's very early on and this early signaling may well have an effect on, on how the market thinks about this as an instrument of social improvement. This program was deployed in such a way that it incentivizes investors to move quickly to take full advantage of the tax break. Yet, IRS regulation has come out quite slowly, which seems like it has led to a lot of this confusion and the feeling of, of free-for-all. Yeah, I think that's, that's right. And without getting overly technical, the, the nature of the, of the incentive is such that if you have a capital gain and you want to put it in play, uh, you can delay paying taxes on that gain if you invest in an opportunity fund. So, so far, so good. That seems a, a reasonable way to get passive money off the shelf and into a more aggressive posture of, of helping communities. And then if you hold that investment for seven years, you get a 15% discount on the taxes that you owe. And then what's more, if the investment you make in that fund actually generates a new capital gain, if it, if it grows in value and you hold that investment for 10 years, the gain is entirely free. And so when you think about it, that's pretty bold stuff. I mean, that is a very strong incentive if properly structured and properly conceptualized to really move markets. But, uh, but you're right, the, the guidelines, uh, and I think it's intentional. I think the guidelines have tried to be a little bit hands-off. They want to sort of see what comes. They don't want to sort of over-prescribe. They don't want to make it bureaucratic. They don't want to essentially set up another new markets tax credit or a low-income housing tax credit. They really want capital to flow freely. And so the upside is great. Let the money flow. The downside is it could flow in, in ways that could not simply not be particularly helpful, but actually might be detrimental in, in some cases. So We've got some guidance about what the money can and can't be used for, but not much. And so I think our, again, our intention at Kresge was to try to put down a marker of the kind of 
uh, reporting we'd like to see, the kind of investment types we'd like to see, and the kind of broad approach to social benefit that we'd like to see. So, Aaron, in order to best achieve the desired outcome that Rip just described, to not only move money into opportunity zones, but to do so in such a way that that it, it served the low-income communities that, that it's meant to, uh, you decided to structure this commitment as a guarantee. Can you tell us what that means and, and why you thought it would be the, the most effective mechanism to achieve the, the outcomes that you set out for? Yeah, here's a couple answers to that. I mean, one of them is practical. As a private foundation, we're not subject to capital gains tax in the same way. So, as an economic investor, we we don't we don't see that benefit, um, you know, from the incentive. Uh, but I think more importantly, we, we've spent a lot of effort over the last few years developing the philanthropic guarantee as a tool. You know, we are, our, our CIO likes to say that private foundations are, are the last platinum balance sheets left on the planet with large assets and very low leverage. We think there's tremendous power in foundations using those balance sheets to de-risk certain kinds of investments uh, in a way that is beneficial to the people in the communities that we care about. The opportunity zones, we think, lend itself well to that, right? We, we can take a risk position and protect investors uh, to help calibrate the risk return environment for an opportunity zone investor while ensuring that the benefits flow to the communities and, and, and the people that we care about. So it, it was sort of an elegant way to, to see the social income or the social uh, um, outcome that we would like to pursue um, without sort of uh, distorting the market or changing the economics in a way that um, sort of distorted the marketplace that's trying to be established. But what is a guarantee as a, a financial mechanism? It sounds like you're, you're basically asking the fund managers or the people deploying capital into these low-income communities to be held to a higher standard of reporting and accountability uh, for their investments, which could potentially scare off investors from wanting to be in those funds. Um, so in exchange, you're, it sounds like you're offering like a certain amount of downside protection um, for those investors. So, so yeah, and from a structure perspective, we are taking a loss position in these funds, and they and they look different across the funds, right? Because they are different; they're different managers, they're different risk profiles. But we are effectively trying to make a trade with managers to say, and ultimately investors to say, if you agree to certain covenants that we have made are explicit inside of our fund operating agreements around transparency, around accountability, around reporting, and around impact, then we will de-risk your funds. And when our managers go to market to raise capital. I, as a, as a third-party investor, if I were to look at the Kresge-sponsored fund versus the next comparative, and I see Kresge standing between me and a certain portion of, of a loss that the fund may experience, my risk return uh, calculation should be enhanced by that. They should be more, they should be more compelling from, a, from an investor perspective because of that risk mitigation. But secondarily, we also think that it's very important to demonstrate to the marketplace that that really serious fund managers who are out to generate returns for investors can do so in a responsible way, right? And can do so in a way that is good both for the communities that they invest in and for the investors that are seeking that return. And so, you know, the risk mitigation from a frontline perspective enhances the risk return profile, but really secondarily, uh, maybe primary to us, is that demonstration that there is a way to deploy this capital that is responsive to the needs of the communities that need the capital so desperately, as well as the investors. 
what is the way that it shows up? What what are these investments look like? Are they are they real estate? Are they equity investments in existing companies? Are they are they new companies? I mean, what what is an actual investment from one of these funds look like into one of these communities? Sure. So we are trying to cover our bases here, um, so we can get. Um at least some useful data around the way that this market is forming. Uh, one of our managers, Arc Terrace, is what I consider to be a core private equity fund, right? They're going to make uh, equity investments into sort of lower middle market size businesses, growth equity. Uh, it's a traditional private equity model, mostly in overlooked markets and, and mostly in sectors that are overlooked by uh, traditional private equity. Um, community capital management, our guarantees really focus at their real estate related investing. And they have a really a really robust sort of platform around the way that they deploy into real estate. And then we're evaluating another venture capital uh, investment to sort of hit those three big buckets to understand, you know, how, how that's going to show up. Again, this is this is really built off the private market mechanism. So we're not inventing something new from a different kind of investment vehicle. It's really about the innovation and the sourcing of capital. That that is sort of what we're teasing out here. Um, and we will find out how it shows up in community. As Aaron was describing it, one of the things that struck me that many listeners might be wondering is not only the sort of the, the sizing of of our intervention at Kresge, which is relatively small, but sort of the broader role of philanthropy uh, in this space. It's uh, interesting to note that at least to this point, I think Kresge is the only philanthropy to sort of enter into these sort of fund structures. And I say that not to be self-congratulatory, but sort of cautionary. Um, There is an enormous amount of energy in the nonprofit and the academic uh, and the think tank world right now about establishing standards, creating investment prospectuses in cities, doing lots of really good, valuable intellectual work, but we took the view that unless we actually have money on the table in the game, it's going to be hard to really get the kind of attention from investors and and fund managers that that we seek. Now, we may be wrong. It may be that two funds, no matter how expertly constructed and no no matter how impactful, may not end up uh, having the kind of impact we want, but they may. And our sense is that you can... uh, spend a lot of time and a lot of energy telling markets what the socially responsible thing to do is. But at the end of the day, uh, this is real money from real investors seeking real returns in real places. And that's complicated. And to, to, and to make that calculation work for in the investment world, you actually got to put the money in play. And so ours is a sort of a bet that um, even relatively small amounts of philanthropic capital signal a willingness to share risk and a willingness to leverage in real time, in real ways, uh, the, um, the, the risk appetite of, of, these, of these investment funds. So we'll see. Uh, we'll see. But I think it's an interesting question to ask why more philanthropies have not sought to enter this field. It may be that we're misguided and that this is um, a fool's errand, but we certainly hope not. And I think one of the things that I hope, and it may not be realistic, but one of the things I hope is that if we can demonstrate fairly early on that this is an approach that has some value, we'll also get some of our philanthropic partners in the game. They should be, I think, as eager as we are to test some of these ideas and test some of these models. So you're trying to prove out the the business model, basically. 
Yeah, and and obviously the, the the proof of the business model will will have to extend over many many years. But I also think that we'll see some turnaround fairly quickly in terms of the willingness of this capital to to move into the funds that are structured in a way that we feel are socially beneficial. You mentioned that it can only be proved out over many years. Um, and, and you've been working in community development and, and neighborhood revitalization and in various capacities for, for several decades now. Um, what, I mean, what, what is the timeline for, for something like this? Is it, is it five years? Is it, is it the next generation? I mean, what, what, I guess, first of all, what does success look like? And second of all, what is the timeline for that success? Well, if I can, if I can div- divide the question, maybe I could talk about what success looks like in, in these opportunity fund structures, and then what success looks broad, more like more broadly in in our uh, interest in community development. Um, for the opportunity funds, uh, clearly, we want these two particular funds that Aaron described to spur real economic opportunity in the communities in which they're invested, where we can actually see again housing and small business formation and other beneficial uses take root, and 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 recognize that that capital can make a difference in making neighborhoods better places to live and to work. Second, we want to. I think success looks like documenting this properly. We want to see what was done, how it happened, so that the field can learn. And again. Hopefully, that timeline is not so long that those learnings can't begin to shape other people's behavior. Um, third, and I guess in a related way, the covenants that um, Aaron described, the, the terms of understanding that we've entered into with these funds uh, could be models for other funds. I see no reason why um, many, many funds might not look to the success of these funds and say, well, these uh, these covenants around uh, social impact are not so onerous. They may not so inhibit our our return um, that we can't do it and, and both do well and, and do good. Uh, and then fourth, and this is a little bit um, going to be a longer term proposition, um, is that we believe that if you optimize the intention of this act, we will actually see fund managers believing that they can operate over the longer term in a socially responsible manner with or without a tax incentive like this, because this tax incentive may or may not exist in in the long term. But I think what we can show, what we hope to show, is that these kinds of deals, these kinds of fund structures, these kinds of engagements with community can ultimately justify themselves. not just socially and morally, but financially. So that's the opportunity zone side of what success looks like, and I'm sure I'm missing something. But on the community development side, uh, it's it's such an interesting question. I can't tell you how many times I'm uh, I'm in conversations where people will say, "Well, look, you've been doing this, Kresge, Ford." Kellogg, you know, all of the big national philanthropic institutions have been playing in this community development space for 20 years. And look, it hasn't made any difference. I think that's fundamentally misguided. Uh, One, it has clearly made a huge difference in the lives of individuals and families and and communities in ways that are impossible to, to quantify sometimes. But people, uh, people's stability, their health and their, um, their long-term uh, 
sustainability as communities has been enormously enhanced by the kinds of investments that private philanthropy has made over the, over the last generation. But second, uh, in, in to, to maybe engage the, the critique more directly, um, the, the machinery of changing social conditions is complex and nuanced. It doesn't always get counted the way we count the number of sales in a market or the number of new uh, phone purchases at a mall. I mean, you can, you can imagine um, creating a different way of coming at social problems, a different way of building the capacity of communities to set the table for their next generation of, of work. Um, you can imagine uh, a very different way of governments um, coming at issues of housing and economic development and open space enhancement and transit and all of the other things that we work on because philanthropy has somehow contributed to a pool of capital that permits them to take risk, to look out over the longer term, and to engage uh, one sector to the other very differently. So I think in, in places like Detroit, you can see success manifesting in very different timelines. Uh, Detroit of three years ago is very different from the Detroit of today. The Detroit of five years ago is even more different than the, than the Detroit of 10 years ago is incomprehensibly different. So that's a relatively short timeline. But on the other hand, uh, there is the very longer uh, timeline of 20 or 30 years that we have to look to because that's the only way you're going to begin to crack the code of how to break down racial disparities, racial injustice, and some of the other structural impediments to full opportunity for the residents of the city of Detroit. And I think as goes Detroit, so go many other American communities. I think we've seen great examples on the coast of, of cities that have become desirable places in almost every dimension of of human life, but others are clearly lagging. And if we can model out a different way of thinking about how communities move forward in Detroit, I have no doubt that in the Philadelphias and the Cantons and the Santa Fe's and the Fresnos of, of this nation, we can make real progress and, and demonstrate that the progress is real and enduring. It sounds particularly complex to to, to monitor and and evaluate the success of something like this. But but one of the the commitments from the fund managers in, in exchange for for the guarantees was a higher level of of accountability. What what are those metrics that you're trying to use as as a proxy to get to get kind of as close as possible to the to, to what you're describing. So I think it's important to think about this um, both from the sort of immediate term or from the fund level perspective and then the market term um, or at a market level. So, so at the fund level, we're, we're effectively trying to get at three core elements. The first element is, is what a lot of people think of, which is really what is happening at the transaction level when a fund raises capital and deploys into portfolio companies or underlying real estate partnerships, whatever the vehicle is, what is happening at that project level? And it's the traditional things that you would think of. What are the job creation numbers, units of housing, square footage of commercial, goods and services provider, right? It's this sort of ground level, community level benefit or detriment or whatever the case may be. What are the, what are the, what are those metrics, right? And, and how are we tracking community progress um, sort of at the, at, the, at the transactional level? The second or mezzanine level is really around what is happening at the fund level. So where is capital coming from? 
what kind of returns are being targeted? What are effectively the terms of that investment? What, what are the things happening at the fund manager level that are shaping the market? Because those sorts of covenants and that kind of detail ultimately are going to dictate the field, the possibility at the, at the lower tier, at the transactional level. And then finally, we're trying to infuse a level of accountability by, by creating at least an advisory board structure that's representative of low-income communities. Because fund managers, many, many of which may be very well-intentioned, but you know, oftentimes are not, let's say, residents of low-income communities who not spend their days working for organizations that represent the interests of low-income communities. And so how do we create a, a feedback loop inside of the fund manager to provide that sort of you know, on-the-ground knowledge about how investment capital is affecting their communities? I'd love to hear more about how you're working with the communities in an, <clears throat> excuse me, in an advisory capacity. What does that look like in, in practice? Um, you know, so I, I think honestly, this is not different than what our bread and butter work is every single day. Our grantees are extraordinarily close to the ground. I mean, it is this this subject is one of the you know, top things we hear about from our grantees at the moment, or you know, across all of our program areas, both our place-based work and our national work. It plays out differently across our program areas, across our market segments, but it is simply a lot of information gathering and dissemination and trying to be an honest voice in, you know, a non-self-interested voice and helping them figure out whether or not this incentive helps the people that they're trying to, you know, improve the lives of or, or if it does not. One of the things that I've wondered as we've watched the rollout of the Opportunity Zone legislation is the extent to which this capital drives the creation of entirely new projects that weren't even contemplated by community, or whether or the extent to which it builds on projects that are already in the pipeline in one way or another that have been planned or conceived or even sort of initially maneuvered to, to try to uh, attract capital because the timeline, and I don't mean to get into the weeds, the timeline, at least on the surface, is fairly quick. Uh, you have to move this capital fairly quickly in order to take advantage of, the, of the, the, the tax benefits. And so my sense as a layperson is that these funds will rely to a considerable extent on projects that have already sort of surfaced in community. Not, not in all cases. I mean, to plop down a new pawn shop or a new warehouse or a new something uh, right in the middle of a port income neighborhood or to sort of slap together a quick new housing project uh, in a gentrifying neighborhood is certainly possible. And I, I suspect we'll see any number of those. But I think about Detroit. And if a, if a fund manager is coming into Detroit, that fund manager is going to have to look to what's already sort of in the works. These deals take a long time to form. They're very complicated to get everything from zoning variances to the capacity to actually put something in the ground. And I think it relates back to Aaron's point that community voice actually becomes important because in a place like Detroit, and I, again, I would say in, in most places in America, City Hall and the private sector, I think, are tuning in much more actively into the kinds of opportunities that neighborhood residents, neighborhood commercial um, communities are identifying as of highest importance. And so there's a lot of stuff that's possible on the ground. There's a lot of stuff 
that uh, could be done on the ground, but the stuff that actually has been vetted by community, has been prioritized by community, has worked its way into the priorities of City Hall, even if money hasn't attached yet to it, I think in some ways creates bumper rails around this. And so my sense is that these funds um, actually will have incentive to do work that is beneficial in community because so many of the projects that we may be contemplating have been pre-vetted, pre-planned, and sort of almost pre-cleared by community. And I think those are the kinds of projects that will move into a sort of a more accelerated development role. Now, having said that, I should look at Aaron, who understands the way markets work, to tell me that I'm wrong about that. <laughs> but I just have the sense that if you're going into Wichita, there are a bunch of projects that you could sort of grab that are in the pipeline, apply your capital gains to uh, with all sorts of complexity involved, but that those will then come to fruition much more, much more quickly than if you go into Wichita and say, well, what could I build here? I just think there, there are layers of politics, there are layers of community engagement, there are layers of pre-existing municipal priorities that you gotta kind of wade through. And the more those are pre-formed, I think the more likely it is that uh, some of these funds will accelerate. I don't know, Aaron, am I off base on that? I, I think the smart money would follow that approach, but you know, it, it, as we have seen, capital doesn't always um, follow that path. So I think it'll be interesting to see if if this incentive changes that dynamic. So it sounds like you both think that one of the silver linings of the accelerated timeline for Opportunity Zone investments is that there'll be projects that were already in the works in these communities and that sourcing projects from local communities is, is something that you value from the work that the Kresge Foundation does around inclusive community development. I think it's to Aaron's earlier comments. I think our emphasis on an inclusive, equitable growth and development in many ways explains why we would do the Opportunity Zone work that we're doing. Um, if the Opportunity Zone investments are going to accelerate the pace of capital flow into communities, you don't want that to obliterate social benefit. You want to try to create rules of the road that ensure that that money doesn't uh, contribute to displacement, doesn't uh, accelerate the gentrification of areas that sort of sit on the shoulder of, of, um, of more affluent areas. There are all sorts of things that accelerated capital could do that could be quite destructive in community. And so our long-term objective of trying to create pathways of opportunity through housing and economic development and uh, commercial development in, in American cities um, has, to, has to sort of be our long-term play. And as you mentioned earlier, Alex, that's a very complicated, nuanced play when you think about how you stitch together all of these very complex systems of public investment and private investment and philanthropic investment and community engagement. It's a really complex alchemy that you've got to pay real attention to. But the short-term play shouldn't be allowed to so fundamentally disrupt our intention um, that it distorts the market. And, I, and that's frankly what I fear the most out of the opportunity zones, is that this money will seek to move so quickly into the path of least resistance that it will threaten to 
undo some very good effort that is being done in city after city after city in America to make sure that as these cities grow and prosper, all residents of that community benefit, whether it's through jobs or through home ownership or through small business ownership. And I just, I think the reason we are so eager to get into this game and do whatever we can is to make sure that the short-termism of this instrument doesn't obliterate the long-term objective we have to uh, uh, grow and sustain equitable cities. Why do you think they structured the legislation so that funds need to be deployed quickly? It seems counterproductive both to the financial and social returns. It just depends on how cynical I'm feeling on any <laughs> given day. Um, you know, there all all government efforts, right, want to demonstrate success, and so this incentive is designed to move very large volumes of capital with largely, I think, the false equivalency that more capital means more good, which you know, we, we will demonstrate time and again that that is not the case. But if, if, if in a year from now or two years from now, Treasury can go back to Congress and say, you know, $20 billion has moved through this, $50 billion, $60 but whatever the number is, right? If you're saying at the onset more money equals good, and then you come back two years later because of this short-term incentive and say, look, more money, more good. Then you sort of propelled yourself into a furthering of the argument of an expansion, a continuance, whatever, whatever the political argument may be. And you know, I, I understand the political expediency of doing that. And there is value in creating urgency, certainly in any fledgling market, right? You need more market participants to sort of get to the place of stability. So I don't criticize necessarily the impulse but we on the side of, of, of folks who are here to represent low-income people, those are the people that we serve. You know, their interest is not necessarily served by rapid deployment of capital. And so there needs to be a balance in both urgency and responsiveness. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. So, Rip, one last question. I, I know we don't have a, a ton of time, um, but the, the foundation has increasingly been using guarantees like this. And, and I, I, I believe you're working on a, a guarantee bank with a number of other foundations. Um, why has this become a, a focal point of the, the, the foundation? Why is this, this tool um, one that you think is, is ideal for certain situations? I think the simple answer is, it, is that it has uh, been so underutilized by philanthropy. You know, we sit on a very clean balance sheet um, of you know three and a half or four billion dollars, and each year we take out of our corpus 150 million dollars to deploy in grants and some other capital to invest through our social investments practice. But we leave the other three billion or three and a half billion sort of sitting there um, un untapped for all practical purposes. And so the idea is is that if we could create a, use an instrument that helps the formation or the acceleration of the formation of deals. Uh, and if that instrument is called only um, in the worst of circumstances where things just simply don't go right, uh, then you have cr created the possibility of leveraging your endowment multifold. I mean, if, you, if we made $100 million of guarantees next year 
And let's assume that 10% of those don't work over the course of the next number of years. So $10 million out of the $100 million um, is, is a loss for Kresge. We still have spent essentially $10 million to create $100 million of leverage, plus whatever other leverage might occur in other capital sources. That's a pretty darn good return. And uh, one of the things that has been a little bit of a struggle for us is to walk that concept into our colleagues' offices and and convince them that, that it makes some sense to try. So the guarantee bank, the so-called guarantee bank, is an effort to get seven or eight or 10 other foundations to pool their capital, to set up a, a, a holding structure that would manage that money and deploy that money back down into community through um, community development finance institutions and the housing world or in the small business development world or in the environmental protection world. We're gonna, I think, start by kind of keeping the fields narrow. And those pooled um, guarantees can, can do for those CDFIs what we're doing on a case-by-case -case basis, which is to take down the risk of the transaction, um, not spend uh, any money from our endowment until it becomes necessary to do so. And by pooling the money, we essentially spread the risk across 10 or 11 different foundations. And so far we've raised about $30 million of guarantees from seven or eight uh, foundations and, and we expect to do more. But we did, we did actually go out to uh, a third party research firm a year or two ago and asked exactly the question you asked, which is, you know, why is this <laughs> seen as such an alien instrument? And the answer back was, there's really kind of no good reason. It just makes sense in any number of different dimensions, but people aren't used to it. It's a slightly different use of the balance sheet than what people have done in the past. And I suppose there is also this sense that you have these sort of longer term, maybe eight or 10 year guarantees on your books and you don't quite know what's gonna to happen to them. And so that just sort of gives people a sort of a generalized discomfort. But as I say, even if you anticipate a 10% loss rate, which is probably a little bit high, uh, you're still getting return far beyond what you would uh, with a straight up grant and you don't get repaid for a grant. Well, it makes sense to me. So I hope, uh, I hope you get a number of other foundations on board. Yeah, I think it's building. It's building. Is there anything that, that I didn't ask either of you that you'd like to, to mention? The only thing that I think is, is related to what Aaron mentioned in his last point was the, the weave between opportunity zones as a longer term instrument of social good, potentially, and the ongoing work that Kresge and so many others are doing in community development. Because I think, I think at the end of the day, the real challenge is less about capital availability. I mean, there's clearly a, clearly a very high need for capital availability and, and both the legislation and, and Aaron have, have articulated that, but almost as important is the capacity of a community to absorb that capital, to prioritize its use, and then to, and then to execute against it. What, what we found in Detroit early on was that there was capital available but we didn't know how to deploy it. We didn't know what our priorities were. We didn't have the delivery mechanisms to do deals. We didn't have the community lending capacity to sort of carry this out over the long term, on and on and on. And so uh, I, I think your earlier question about 
Kresge's work in the community development field and the need to sort of keep our eyes on inclusive economic growth over the long term essentially translates into fundamentally the same thing, whether you have an opportunity zone mechanism or not. And that is to ensure that community by community in American cities, we're very clear about what our priorities are, that those priorities reflect the needs and the opportunity pathways for low-income people, that we create mechanisms both in the public, private, and nonprofit sectors to take that capital and put it to work, uh, and that it essentially ends up becoming a sort of a holistic approach to the sort of totality of community need. That, that you can't do all housing, you can't do all commercial, you can't do all small business, that this becomes a weave, and that the muscle of setting community priorities and making sure that those priorities sort of reflect the long-term interests of a place uh, is sort of where these two worlds come together. That's, uh, that's really great. And, uh, yeah, and I think a, a good note to end on. So thank you both so much for, for taking the time to, to sit down with me and for the, the work that you're doing. It's, it's, uh, it's inspirational. Thanks, Alex. Well, thank you for your time. It's a real pleasure. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Money and Meaning. I hope you enjoyed the conversation with Rip and Aaron. If you have any feedback, questions, comments, etc., we'd love to hear from you. You can reach us via email at moneyandmeaningpodcast at gmail.com or Twitter or Instagram at our handle at SoCapMarkets. As usual, alongside each episode, we publish a blog on our website, socialcapitalmarkets.net, with additional resources for anyone who wants to learn more about the topics discussed. Lastly, if you enjoyed the show, please share it with a friend and rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts. We'll be back in two weeks with a new episode. You've been listening to Money and Meaning, unlikely allies building new markets for impact. With your hosts, Lindsay Smalling and Alex Kravitz. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever podcasts are heard. To learn more, check out our website, socialcapitalmarkets.net. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram, at SoCapMarkets. Thanks for listening.